Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Ed Morrison, who is the director of the Agile Strategy Lab at the University of North Alabama. Ed has consulted with many corporate organizations, and he's worked with communities and regions on how to tackle the complex challenges of building a prosperous economy in an era of globalization. In that process, he's been working on a new methodology, which he's grown to call strategic doing. He's the co-author of Strategic Doing, 10 Skills for Agile Leadership. It's great to have Ed on the deep dive. Thanks for being with me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. You know, I have a, a lot to get to, so I'm, I'm trying to do it in as organized a fashion as possible, which is a challenge for me, because I'm always jumping from one idea, one concept to another. And for someone like yourself who has been thinking and rethinking and designing and redesigning how we think about strategy, particularly as you said, someone putting out this concept of strategic doing, what I'd like to do before we really get into the, the nooks and crannies of what that process is all about is to, to really start with some, some definitions because strategy you know, as someone who's a strategist, there's as many strategists, there are definitions for strategy. So I, I think it's useful to sort of set the table with how you think about strategy before we back into what led you to architecting strategic doing. So strategy, how, how do you think about that concept? It's a, a blurry, fuzzy concept, and unless you have a very clear understanding of it, I think you can really get lost in the weeds. As I was redesigning strategy for networks, I came across the work of Kathleen Eisenhart in Stanford. Kathleen has worked a lot with high-growth companies in, in very turbulent markets. She defined strategy quite simply as the answer to two questions. Where are we going? And how will we get there? These are two simple but not easy questions to answer. And a strategy must answer those two questions. And I like the fact that you, you brought up the where are you going piece, because as I was making my notes and thinking about this conversation, I had it planned a little later. So this is a perfect example of my non-linear way of kind of jumping into stuff. But when I hear this idea of, of where are we going it, at least in my mind, makes me think of kind of a, a shared purpose, shared vision. And it seems that to, in order to get to those ideas, we have to think about culture in some way. Is How do you incorporate that concept of culture as a part of strategy? Well, we think of culture quite explicitly as patterns of thinking, patterns of behaving, and patterns of doing work or activities together. And part of the challenge in our organizations is developing these new habits because the old habits are largely dysfunctional. They don't 
prepare us for the complexity that we're confronting. So part of the discipline of strategic doing and part of the discipline of what we've worked on is how do we build these new habits on a regular basis across the entire organization or the community or the region? And we define culture quite explicitly in terms of those three dimensions, thinking, behaving, and doing work together. And culture is one of those words, right, that has many definitions. My own definition of culture that I use in my practice and part of my definition makes a distinction between what I call like formal and informal institutions, right? That we we have the the way in which we are sort of indoctrinated into our way of being. And much of that acts on us invisibly. And then there's informal tools, Mm -hmm. like that kind of thinking and doing that we can incorporate that can shift that behavior. Strategic doing, how does it mesh those ideas of the formal and informal? Well, what it essentially says is that you have largely a bunch of informal patterns that have evolved in an organizations that are often reinforced by formal structures. So I'll give you an example. University faculty often have problems developing cross-disciplinary research. Part of the problem is that they don't have the skills. They've not been taught the skills on how to truly collaborate, how to really work together. They can coordinate. They can prepare joint proposals together. They know how to do that. But as soon as the money hits the table, they run in their different directions. They don't really collaborate. They don't have the habit of collaboration embedded in their portfolio of activities. That set of patterns, which are largely informal, are reinforced by a bunch of formal incentives within the university that run vertically through the university and reward the individual researcher. So all of the rewards, all the tenure, all the the, uh, advancement is directed toward the individual and it runs vertically. So there's a very competitive environment that's set up within the university that undercuts the ability to collaborate. If you want to understand why universities have difficulty building collaborative teams, it's you have to look at both the informal and the formal structure. What we do in strategic doing is bring those out and start to explicitly talk about how do we develop new patterns of thinking, behaving, and doing that foster collaboration. And often what we've learned is that we behave our way into new ways of thinking. In other words, if we can work together on very small projects to begin with and demonstrate the rewards of collaboration, true collaboration, people start to change the way they think. And then we can institutionalize this and we can reinforce it with new, more formal sets of incentives that enable the collaboration to continue. This is a problem not just in universities, but basically in every hierarchical organization I've ever seen, where you have the incentives all running vertically, uh, the competitive sense all running vertically. And increasingly, in order for us to uh, deal with complexity, we have to think and act more horizontally. In other words, cross-disciplinary collaborations or inter-organizational collaborations where we're competing or collaborating with multiple organizations. And we don't, we're not just set up to do that. And that's part of the, uh, the purpose of strategic doing is to develop these new patterns of thinking, behaving, and doing work together. 
and doing it very explicitly. And you hit on so many of my favorite words in there, right? There's hierarchy, there's complexity, many of these ideas being conditioned and, and perhaps not being the best tools to deal with emerging challenges that we have today, which are very complex. You know, I want to really start to pull that apart. Mm-hmm. Before we go there, though, you mentioned that and academics, and of course, academics don't have, are not the sole people with this challenge, as you, as you noted. There's this difference between collaboration and coordination, because I'm, I'm always interested in times where terms are used interchangeably, but yet are, are very, very different. Because I think many people hearing this will think to themselves, well, I, I work in teams all the time. You know, I have an assistant, I have a boss. I, you know, even if I'm the author of the research paper, to, to use the academic example, mm-hmm. many people were part of that process. Like, academics co-author things all the time, right? So they would think to themselves, like, I collaborate, but mm-hmm. yet coordination is is different. So I want to give you an opportunity to explain where the differences lie there and why they're important before we get to all the other stuff. Sure. So you can think of this as a continuum. And on one end of the continuum, you have people who basically don't, don't interact at all, right? So then you have a group of people perhaps that are advocating together. So they work together to be fans of a baseball team or a football team. They're connecting and they're you know, sharing their enthusiasm, but they don't really know each other. Or they may know each other, but they're not really sharing anything but their enthusiasm. If you move to a new, another level down this continuum, you might get to uh, what we thought, think about as learning communities, where I'm, I'm willing to help you, you're willing to help me. We're kind of coordinating our activities in the sense that we both go on to uh, a Zoom session at uh, Friday at 12 o'clock and, and discuss our challenges together. We're coordinating our time, our schedules, what we're doing together. We're aligning our resources but we're not really creating anything new. When you start to collaborate, you are creating something new out of the assets that you have access to and you're willing to share. So this requires actually a high level of trust. Collaboration is a process of creating new value out of assets that you already have access to, but you have to be willing to share those assets with your collaborators And that takes a level of trust that doesn't exist in uh, coordination or just coming together to to discuss a book or a a shared learning experience. So one of the implications of that, of course, is that when you're trying to build these innovating networks, these networks of people who are capable of creating something on their own that's new and different, capable of innovating, that this takes time, that this takes discipline and time. And so you can't just snap this together. You can't appoint people to teams and assume that they're going to innovate. You can't involuntarily push a person into a team and say, okay, let's innovate. It's not going to work that way because there is not the trust that powers the innovating network. So you, you have to think about this as a process over time. And that's really what strategic doing does is it creates a, a simple process that uh, is not easy but it's a process that people can follow. 
I want to use this time now to really start to go deeper into strategic doing, the mm-hmm. architecture of it. And I think it might also be useful to, you know, let listeners know what informed this journey, right? Because you've been working on this for over two decades. So it it wasn't something that was just kind of pulled out of the ether, so mm-hmm. to speak. And mm-hmm. I think in your response around collaboration and coordination, toward the end, you really started to talk about time. Mm-hmm. And I think in a corporate perspective, we're so, you know, what I call short-termism, right? This quarter by quarter decision-making process seems to be an inhibitor to processes like strategic doing. So I editorialize quite a bit, but I want to try to get some of those chunks mm-hmm. into that parsing of the strategic doing as a process, which as you've highlighted is, is simple, but yet not easy. Right, right. Well, the, the journey started uh, a little bit of the backstory. I was up on Capitol Hill for 10 years early on in my career. I was working on the issues of competitiveness when the Japanese were, were starting to invade major, major markets. I thought the solution to these problems was in Washington. By the early 80s, I was convinced that it wasn't. So I went to work for a corporate strategy consulting firm. I worked for General Electric, Ford, and Volvo were the three primary clients of this uh, boutique firm. And what I was effectively doing in many cases was uh, helping these companies globalize in the early 80s. And they were accelerating, especially General Electric, accelerating the process of deindustrialization or moving. We were moving factories out of the U.S. to other lower cost locations. It was very clear to me that this was not a a business cycle, that this was a fundamental shift that was happening in our economy and that no one was really addressing the challenges of the regions left behind. So I decided to go off in my consulting and my initial premise was I could apply the same strategic planning models that we were using internally to a company to the situation of a community or a region. And on surface, it makes sense. Communities or regions are portfolio of businesses, just like a General Electric is a portfolio business. But it's true that you can do this, but it's really, really hard. So about 10 years into this, I decided this isn't going to work. This is not going to scale. It's not going to address these challenges. And in a chance meeting in Singapore with a client company, an early, early internet company, I sat down with the chief technology officer who was a physicist. He had just come out of the weapon, one of the weapons labs. And I was explaining over lunch what my frustration was. And he said, well, you think you should think about two things. One is the internet. It's coming. Now, this was a year before Netscape showed up as a commercial browser. So it was 1993. And he said, you need to think about the internet because it's our first interactive mass medium. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it's going to mean. We don't know how the situation is going to change, but it's going to change fundamentally. And the second is, a second point he made to me was, you need to think about open source software development because that's how a group of loosely connected people do complex work together. So if you can figure out how open source software works, you might have an avenue to understand the strategic problems that you're trying to deal with. I went to Oklahoma City in 1993. I was invited in to give a proposal. Uh, The city was on its back after 10 years of oil collapse, a banking collapse. They had not been able to move. 
I made a pitch. I said we could try to do something completely new, which is we're going to experiment starting day one. We're not going to go through this long data exercise. We're going to, we know a lot already about what might work. We're going to start testing hypotheses and we're going to iterate. And um, sure enough, we were successful. It took about seven years to really see the economy turn around. We started seeing some green shoots in about year three or four, but it continued. Of course, we had the bombing in there. That was part of it. Mm -hmm. But by 2005, in a variety of other uh, consulting applications that I had done in Charleston and the state of Kentucky, all working on these really complex questions of how do you transform an economy that's been crushed by, by globalization, where companies have pulled out. By 2005, I was clear that there was a model in my head that I knew what I was doing, and, but I didn't know how to teach it, and I didn't really know how to explain it very well. So I was invited to Purdue University to learn how to teach it. And I took them up on that option. I could have consult, continued consulting, but I decided I would like to learn how to teach it. And I thought I'd be there for three or four years and I'd go back to my consulting career. And of course, I was there for 15 years because it turns out that figuring out how to teach this is really hard. It's not easy. And by 2010 or 11, we were pretty clear that we had a we had a, an approach that worked and then we've continued to develop it and we're moving it online. We published the book. We published the book at the end of the journey, not the beginning of the journey, because, you know, at the end of the journey, I, want, I didn't want to publish the book until if people were interested in this, then we could follow up and train them. You know, the, the worst thing, you've been through this, you've seen this, uh, you know, fads, people throw out their book and say, oh, I, well, you know, that's a great, that's a great way to increase your speaker for use. I mean, it really is. Yeah. It's a, but, but it really doesn't have much of an impact beyond your speaker fees. It's and, kind of the diet book model, right? Every, yeah, every few yeah, years, yeah. there's a, there's <laughs> right. a new one. Yeah. Yeah. And the strategy field is in particular is, is driven by fads, you know, and, and you've seen this. And so part of the challenge was if we were going to develop a new strategy discipline specifically designed for open, loosely connected networks, we need to know that we have it right. And we have to apply the same model to the neighborhoods in Flint that are facing really complex challenges like teenage homicides and the challenges of NASA, where they have life scientists trying to figure out how to collaborate. And we've got to be able to use the same language, the same tools, and if we can do that, then we're pretty clear that we probably have a pretty robust model. And so by, as I said, by about 2011 or 12, we were pretty clear we were on the path. I had reached an agreement with Purdue before I came that I said I was going to bring some intellectual property, some of the work that I had done, and that if it was successful, we would open source the IP and that we'd make it available. And if it wasn't successful, nobody's going to care. <laughs> so Purdue basically stuck to, it's a land grant. Purdue's a land grant university, and it's very focused on applied knowledge. So I was very fortunate to be there under the presidency of uh, Martin Jiski. And uh, my mentor there was a former dean of the College of Agriculture, Vic Lechtenberg. And so I had a group of senior leaders at the university who really supported this work. It essentially gave me a job for 10 years to figure this out. And that's a really important piece of the culture part, right? That oh, you're yeah. in a situation where they're already 
thinking about the framework of how to produce work in a, in a way that allows for that that trust element that you talked mm-hmm. about, right? That mm-hmm. usually when you hear words like intellectual property, it pretty much ties you to an ownership type of model, right? That I'm going to own this, I'm going to profit from it almost exclusively, right? It, it All of that tracks into, hi- into a hierarchical model. Once you start talking about open source, trust, loosely connected networks and pulling those things together, it, it really is a paradigm shift away from kind of that industrial age model that is very much hierarchical control right. conveyor belt. Right. right. So it, it sounds like the culture and understanding that shift, right? Because even understanding the internet requires mm-hmm. a shift. Mm-hmm. It's it's really important for those green shoots. Absolutely. We're we're moving from a world of closed systems to a world of open systems. And this is what I saw when I was doing my work with uh, Ford and trying to understand how it was that the Japanese were able to manufacture a car, fundamentally the same car, at a significantly lower cost. Well, what the Japanese were doing, they were developing a manufacturing model that was much more leveraged on the power of networks. And you just look at their supplier relationships, for example. The automobile industry in the U.S. was very, very hierarchical at the time. And so what you were, and it played out in very real context, the design build cycles on on new models of cars was months, months shorter in Japan than it was in the U.S. And why was that? Well, you know, it, it was primarily because they were leveraging the power of networks. And if you saw the early 80s, it was the networks were already there. They were starting to form. They were starting to emerge. And uh, what the physicist in Singapore was basically telling me was, this is going to come at us in a big wave, in a huge wave with the internet. And he, he made an interesting point. He said, don't be fooled by what you first see on the internet. What you're first going to see on the internet is movies. And I said, well, why, why is that? And he said, well, when radio came, the first thing, or when television came, the first thing they did was put radio t- shows on television. And when radio came, the first thing they did was put vaudeville on radio. So the content is always going to come from the last S-curve. Don't be fooled by that. The fact that this is a mass interactive medium is a huge, huge shift. And of course, he was right. Yeah, that was a that was a prescient observation because Netscape, I obviously remember it. I, I, I attached Netscape and AOL very much together in my mind as they were the introductory ways in, mm-hmm. in which, you know, graduating from school in 94, that was like the introductory way I kind of came to the internet, you know, in college, internet was was not a thing and and fast forward just a few years at least in its nation stages it it becomes everywhere right you know there's a few other things this complexity i really want to get to the challenge of complexity because as you highlighted you know you wanted to make strategic doing something that can be used in a corporate setting mm-hmm. as well as in among communities and and regions and even as you were discussing this, some of the examples that you use, you're talking Oklahoma City, you're talking Flint, you're currently at University of North Alabama. Mm-hmm. You know, these these are not 
the places that many people who want to apply the craft of strategy mm-hmm. spend their time, right? Mm-hmm. Like people localize and think, oh, New York. And, you know, I'm sitting in New York, um, you know, San Francisco, LA, you know, all the big, all the big places. But yet the true challenges, I think, are, are, are you're seeing them in the places where you are. They are in Flint, right? They, and there are larger stories or larger um, learnings to be extrapolated from those places. So how was it kind of going into those types of regions, going into those types of communities and pulling these types of, this type of concepts together and getting results? Yeah, so so the challenge came to me. I mean, essentially what would happen is people would come to me and say, you know, I understand that you deal with these really complex challenges. Can you help us? What's fascinating to me is that a lot of these challenges are the real opportunities to innovate come at the edge of the network. It doesn't come at the in the in the center of the network. There's a lot of power structures. Our democracy won't be in the US won't be reformed in Washington. It's going to be reformed on the edges. And that's because that's where new opportunities start to cross-fertilize. Networks can cross-fertilize more easily. And so uh the challenge of strategic doing, I was always looking for the really, really tough problems. And what I learned from my consulting practice is the quality of your consulting is directly proportional to the quality of your client, right? So if people wanted to engage in a multi-year process of transformation and work, we were willing to support an experiment as to how to do that, that's where I went. That's how I, that's how I worked. Because it's not short-term, your point about short-termism early on, it's not a short-term transformation. You're designing what's next. And you do that through experiments. And when you have successful experiments, you scale these experiments. And this is much the way you know, a, a venture capitalist would think. I, you know, at one point, I was doing work in China. And uh, we were working on a, on a joint venture. We had a venture capitalist funding this project. And I came in with my business plan and my first reporting meeting, and they looked at me and said, put your business plan away. We already know what's in the business plan. I said, okay, well, what do you want to talk about? And he said, well, how are you running to daylight? Where is the daylight? What are you going to do? And so part of this whole notion of institutionalizing a new way of thinking about strategy involves making that culture shift to enable small-scale experiments that are scalable, replicable, and sustainable to go forward. And you can manage your risk in a strategy process like strategic doing far more easily than you can in strategic planning. We use very tight time buckets. We, we manage this in a very short, short frame. So you know whether you're heading off in the wrong direction pretty darn quickly and you make adjustments. Part of the challenge, of course, is changing the mindset the way in which we behave, and the way in which we do work together within our large-scale organizations. It means for traditional management, in a sense, giving up control. But it does not mean you give up accountability. It does not mean you give up the notion that you're going to use data. We use data in agile strategy and strategic doing very intensively. We use it much more intensively than you would in strategic planning, because we're continuously trying to figure out what's going to work. And when we find out what's going to work, 
That's the daylight and we move toward it. So this whole notion of agility in strategy is very much different than the old strategic planning model where you had essentially a small group of people at the top who were the head of the organization who thought and figured out what the strategy was. And then they used command and control essentially to to align all the resources to execute the strategy. And of course, that didn't happen very well. So that's one of the reasons why strategic planning is, faces difficulties. So part of this is just changing the way in which people think again. And it sounds like when I was reviewing this and, and thinking about it, I think to the untrained eye, there can appear to be paradoxes within the way you think about this, right? In that there's a long cycle, uh-huh. you know, but yet there's smaller time frames of experimentation, right? right? And I think on first blush, folks will say, well, oh, well, how how do those two things support one another? So John Hagel at Deloitte is a great thinker in this space. And he talks about zooming in and zooming out, the continuous zooming in and zooming out. The way I, I like to explain it is I used to do a lot of ocean kayaking. You know, if you were a strategic planner doing ocean kayaking off the coast of Maine, you'd sit there on the beach and you'd try to come up with this really detailed plan about how you're going to get to Wood Island, which is a couple of miles off the coast, uh, off the beach, and you would try to figure out the uh, all of the factors that are going to impact your boat. You'd look at the wind conditions, you look at the wave conditions, you'd try to figure out where the tide was doing, all that kind of stuff. And you try to come up with this really detailed plan. And of course, as soon as you hit the water, your plan is worthless because everything has changed, right? So the the idea of doing strategic planning in an in a turbulent environment doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But that doesn't mean you abandon strategic thinking. What it means is that you set your course, you get in your kayak, and you continuously make adjustments to your course. Every once in a while, you put your head up, you figure out, oh, my goodness, I'm off 15 degrees or 20 degrees. I need to paddle more in this direction or in that direction. And so you are continuously making adjustments by paddling, paying attention to your paddling, but then every once in a while, raising your head and figuring out where you reorienting yourself, right? Now, when you're doing this in a very turbulent environment, you pick your head up much more frequently than you would in calm seas. What you don't ever do when you're ocean kayaking is you never stop paddling. Because if you stop paddling, that's your most vulnerable position. That's where you're least stable. And what happens in time after time after time that I've seen organizations and, and um, address these complex challenges is they just kick the can down the road. They say, well, we got, we got to get more data. We got to get, you know, and effectively what they're doing is they're stopping paddling. They're not, they're not doing anything. They're just giving excuses for not doing anything. This creates a big, big problem for the organization because, again, it becomes slower learning, slower to adapt, slower in its ability to respond to the outside forces. So the challenge, of course, is building in these new habits and encouraging those new habits in our companies. In order to do that, we have to come up with pretty clever ways to bring together networks of the willing who are are willing to experiment with these ideas and see how they can create value quickly and 
frankly, cheaply and improve productivity quite dramatically. And there's a lot in that, particularly when you're thinking about like kicking the can down the road, Mm -hmm. right? Because you also talked about accountability Mm -hmm. and trust. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's always interesting to me when you start to have these conversations, how quickly this, the social sciences start to become really front and center mm-hmm. in, in the sense that, yes, we, we have the data, we have the rigor, we have all those kind of things, but they seem to start to fall apart a bit if you don't have those other things, right? The accountability that you talked about, the trust, because that engenders the transparency. You're really cooking those things into the system. And the reason why I wanted to talk about the kicking the can down the road, because it it feels as if, and and maybe every generation is is guilty of this, as that feeling that these particular times, though not unique, we're facing the culmination of many wicked problems all at the same time. Yeah, Yeah, we've kicked the can down the road to the point where now we're running out of road. Right. And like, how do you reverse that? Or am I too pessimistic about that perspective? Not saying that these aren't soluble problems, but Mm -hmm. the road seems to be getting a bit shorter. These situations are becoming more more and more complex and they're coming at us faster. And so this complexity is growing in intensity. Now, this is not unpredictable. I mean, a Canadian environmental scientist, Thomas Homer Dixon, wrote a really great book in 20 years ago that said, you know, we're facing an ingenuity gap. We're, we're not coming up with solutions to these complex challenges. And part of the way I interpret that is because the way in which we're organized, the conversations we have, how we manage ourselves, we're not generating the ingenious solutions we need for all of these complex problems. We effectively just kick the can down the road. Now, what what essentially is happening is a manager or a leader, you face basically two kinds of problems. One is a technical problem, a set of technical problems like, I don't know, filling out your tax returns, making sure that you comply with all the local statutes, or if you're, you know, if you're making a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission, These are technical problems, Uh, getting a new drug approved technical set of problems. They can become quite complicated, these technical problems, but they are, they have a solution to them. They, we understand that they have a solution to quite distinct from that are complex challenges. These are adaptive problems. These are environmental problems where the organization has to make an adaptation to its environment. We have to change the way in which we have to do things. We have to come up with new business models. We have to take new technologies and combine them in new and different ways. We've got to do a lot of different new things. We are not really well set up to do that yet, primarily because we don't know how to collaborate. And that comes down to, we don't know how to have the conversations that lead to the collaborations. One of the key insights I think that we've had is that complex collaborations emerge from conversations with an underlying structure and trajectory. The structure is clear and it changes over time. 
they move from divergent conversations to convergent conversations very quickly within the space of an hour or two. And if you don't understand how to design and guide that kind of conversation, chances are you're not, not going to come up with a very productive collaboration. On the other hand, if you do design, if you do understand that underlying structure, you can lead these conversations, you can design and lead these conversations by asking questions. And that's what strategic doing is all about. It's designing these new sets of skills that enable people to design and guide their own conversations so that they can come up with ingenious solutions. So in Flint, they came to us and said, could strategic doing help us reduce teenage homicides? The true answer to that question is, I don't know. We can try. Same thing with NASA. Can strategic doing help us build collaborations across all of the life scientists in uh, uh, NASA? And the true answer to that is, we don't know. But if we teach people how to collaborate, we teach people how to design and guide these conversations, what we saw was collaborations emerging that came up with ingenious solutions to complex problems. So we just got to, the, the good news is that strategic doing is cheap. I mean, it's, you know, once you learn the skills, you can, you can, I mean, it doesn't cost you anything. So that's why it's an open source model. You just learn the skills and you'll be fine. Now <clears throat> that the conversation piece, this convergent, divergent conversations, right? Happening very quickly in order to get to mm -hmm. a way of doing, doing mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. You know, when I first started reading through this, and maybe I'm putting like a, a social lens onto it, which might not be intended, it's that you hear all the time or read all the time in, in social media and on all these platforms, like, oh, we're just talking at each other and we've never been more apart from one another. And it sounds like this can be a way through some of that, some of that thinking. I'm curious in some of the examples, if, if this has ever happened, so I don't know whether it has or hasn't, but I feel that it's one thing to have convergent and divergent conversations when I'm generally aligned, even if I don't agree with everything, right? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. much harder to do that if I'm, you know, if I'm like, oh, it's sunny outside and someone's like, no, it's raining. Then it's like, well, we're not even really looking at the same stuff. And so I'm curious when people say that we're disagreeing, sometimes I feel like we're not really looking at the same stuff, right? Like if you're, if you're dealing with Flint and you're faced with a challenge of, you know, not just homicide, but not having access to clean water, in mm -hmm. any number of, of other issues. Mm -hmm. And you're saying like, okay, these are a particular set of circumstances and someone tasked with solving those or maybe being part of the infrastructure is like, well, I don't see that as a problem at all because if they want clean water, they should buy it. Water should be private, right? Like, or I'm not yeah. saying that that was something you experienced, but there are views out there like that, right? That would say, oh, the failings there are, failings of morality. All right. So, so what's happening there is you're taking a complex challenge like teenage homicides, or we work with maternal mortality or, you know, um, you know, Lockheed asked us to work on the, how, how do we trans, how do we uh, uh, scale 
the deployment of uh, condition-based maintenance across the Aegeus destroyer fleet. Well, these are nobody's done this. This is really complex. This is hard, all right? But if you start getting into a problem-centric mindset, hmm. so you say, okay, well, what's the problem there? Then you're setting yourself up for argument because there isn't any single factor that's causing this. It's these are complex adaptive systems. They have they have multiple reasons why we're getting the symptoms, mm-hmm. why we're producing the results that we have. There's many, many reasons why this is happening. The question that we want to answer is, can we design a better system that gives us better results? And so the, the issue is to focus on conversations and design these conversations in such a way that we are pointing toward opportunities and not taking our technical mindset and trying to solve a complex problem, because all that does is get into arguments, right? Now, one of the mysteries of this, and which is one of the paradoxes, of course, is that when you deal with complexity, cognitive diversity matters. How people look at the world matters a lot. There's a great uh, body of work done by Scott Page up at the University of Michigan. And what he's pointing toward is, look, if you can bring together people who are looking at the world differently, your chances of learning faster, spotting opportunities faster, moving faster is greater. You're going to be more adaptive. And so this whole notion that diversity is somehow a negative is something we need to tamp down or something we need to regulate or something, you know. No, it's really an opportunity for us to bring together people with diverse viewpoints and to have them share in an opportunity design or an ability to, or a a willingness to work together to design a future that we want to share together. So we do this in the context of a strategic doing session with a framing question. The question, and the framing question really substitutes in a sense for a vision statement. Because rather than make a statement, because we don't know, nobody can know. So no, that's why vision statements don't work. Nobody, nobody really knows what the, what the future holds. But we can embed what we think are possibilities in a question, and we can invite people to explore that question. So in Flint, what would it look like if uh, every child could walk home without fear of, of violence? What would that look like? What would our churches be doing? What would our mothers be doing? What would our schools be doing? And it's that question of designing a future that we can all share in that draws people to these conversations. So the job of leadership now is to ask that powerful question, is to frame these powerful questions, and then to guide the conversation in a way that's civil. And so the first rule of strategic doing is creating psychological safety. Why is that? Well, you know, some people will say, well, it's nice to be nice. It's nice not to have arguments. And that's true. But psychological safety is, is incredibly important for another reason. Without psychological safety, we cannot do complex thinking together. We can't do complex thinking together. So if you don't treat one another in ways that build trust and mutual respect, you're wasting your time. So don't do that. So part of the rule is, again, one of the leadership rules that we have to follow is creating these psychologically safe spaces where hierarchy doesn't have a a role to play, where we have a situation where everybody has gifts that they're willing to share and we come together and we try to figure out, okay, what's a solution to this framing question? What could we do together? 
And it's when you engage in those conversations and you do that and pair that with action steps every time you convene so that you have action steps for everyone involved, that people, now you start to build up a pattern of trustworthy behavior. You know, if, if you had scheduled this, this podcast and said, okay, Ed, clear your schedule for this hour and uh, I'm, we want to do this podcast. And I'd say, great. And so I clear my schedule and then I get on to Squadcast and, you know, no Philip. What am I going to think, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, if we do these small steps together and we do them continuously in relatively short time buckets, we can create patterns of trustworthy behavior across organizations. The interesting dimension of this is that trust powers the innovating network. Trust unlocks the productivity of using our assets in new and different ways. But how many times have we read, you know, in management journals, oh, we, we need to build trust. But, but, okay, the question is, has always been, how? How do you do this? What new practices do you need? What new skills do you need? Same thing with collaboration. Oh, we need to collaborate. Well, collaboration actually isn't just a verb. It's actually a complex adaptive system. And it responds to a set of simple rules. And we've, we've tried to distill these simple rules in strategic doing. What are the rules that you need to follow to come up with a complex collaboration? If you look at a swarm of birds, for example, each one of the individual agents, each one of the individual birds is not making some major calculation about how to fly. They're basically following three or four simple rules. And out of that comes a complex pattern of behavior. And same thing with a collaboration. I love that example because I did a talk last year in Moscow for a digital marketing conference. And I used a video of a swarm of swallows as they kind of did their maneuver. And I actually got that from a friend of mine who I connected to via, via LinkedIn, um, Alberto Barrera. And he's part of a group that's doing a, a strategic planning called Become, that I'm going to be taking part of in a couple of weeks. It's not a plug about that, but more so because this might air be after we already do that. So I'm not mm -hmm. particularly plugging that engagement, but I am plugging the connection to Alberto because he, he wrote an essay using that video. And that's one of the things that got us connected. And then I used it as, as well. So I, I think that's a perfect visual when people are thinking about complexity and coordinated action and, and small movements as mm -hmm. part of a, a greater whole. I want to get to one other question before we get to off the dome and the drop, because you mentioned this idea of, of I don't know. And it, it seems to me that we double down on these notions of certainty, particularly mm -hmm. when we're working in strategy or futurism or whatever people want to call it. Like we really glom on to the people who say, these are the top five things you need to do if you want to do this, right? Like or top 10 or whatever the list is, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's a lot of power in admitting that it's not about one future, it's any number of viable futures, right? Like we're not heading down this linear path. And when you said, can I solve this problem in Flint? I don't know. Can I, can I be part of this solution in NASA? I don't know. And I'm sure that's happened at other times, right? So I want to 
investigate that notion of, of I don't know and how you came to feeling very comfortable and confident in leading with that, you know, and then we'll get to the, the last two segments of the show. Well, I had a, an experience as a consultant and it was where I took off the mask of the consultant because again, the consultant goes into the room, I, I have all the answers, right? And when I faced a particularly complex problem in the early 90s, I, I had to admit to myself on the stage that I didn't know the answer. So I, that's when I removed the mask. That's when I took the mask down and said, you know, I, I really don't know. But that was a pivotal event in the development of strategic doing because that, then I moved away from becoming the consultant on the stage to a participant in the crowd. That's a, a big shift. But it's a big leadership shift. It's a, you know, you, you can, you, you have to change the way you think about your role as a leader. And so uh, this is a, this is an important insight is that strategic doing strategy, open networks and strategy in open networks changes the way leadership is done. It actually democratizes it. It changes the way it, it works. And no one, when we're facing these complex challenges, can understand how to address these challenges by themselves. No organization. In fact, in 2009 or maybe 2011, our group of practitioners who came from all over the country came together and basically designed a credo. And I had referred to, to that credo in the book. But it essentially says, look, we're going to face some really complex challenges ahead. Nobody has all the answers, but we all have gifts that we can share to figure out some solutions. There is no one solution to any of this. There are multiple solutions. It's not right or wrong. It's better or worse. And so part of the challenge is coming up with better solutions, better systems that give us more of what we want, more well-being, more prosperity, more shared prosperity, all of those things. The point is that the industrial age systems that were designed well over 100 years ago don't work in a complex environment very well. They do work for some things. They work well for, and there are clear answers. And, you know, when you face a technical problem, how do I get my taxes filed? There are clear answers to that. But increasingly, more of our world is taken over by these complex challenges. What do we do with COVID? How do we restart? How do we run our schools in a, in a midst of a pandemic? How do we vote in the midst of a pandemic? What do we do? These are all complex challenges. Nobody has a simple answer to that. And if you are a leader, you have to acknowledge that you don't have the answers either. But you do have gifts. You do have networks. And presumably, you're in that position because you do have very strong networks. You do have assets that you're willing to share. So get down on the table, sit down, and start working on these together. And so that's a, that's a shift. That's, a, that's definitely a shift. But the ingenuity that emerges out of these groups is remarkable. I've lived long enough to be able to see it. So uh, that's what's exciting to me. And, and when, I tell, when I tell people about this, I say, you know, I wish I could give you, I wish I could describe the feeling, for example, of going to Oklahoma City now. You can look on the internet and see what Oklahoma City's like. But when I went to Oklahoma City in 1993, which was about a year before the bombing happened, there was one downtown hotel. And I often was the only person in it. Now, this is the capital of Oklahoma. It was that bad. Now, to walk into Oklahoma City now and to see what, what's there, it's incredible. And that transformation started with six people 
sitting around a table, willing to experiment, agreeing that, hey, we can't fall off the floor, so let's try this. And um, the transformation happens. You continuously focus on doing the doable, and the transformation will happen. Well, I know who's, who's really annoyed at your work in Oklahoma City, and that is Seattle. Because <laughs> <Okay>. without, <laughs> without your work, likely this, um, the supersonics would the Sonics would not have moved and become the Thunder. So they're they might be annoyed. <laughs> they might actually, be annoyed that you moved that yeah. one hotel into like a place that could actually attract the Sonics out of Seattle. Well the backstory of that is that Clay Bennett, who's the the owner of of uh, the Thunder, was one of those six people. Oh. <laughs> See, I was just trying to be a sports guy <laughs> and make a little joke and it oh, turned yeah. out that there was more truth to that than I thought. Give you a little bit of the backstory. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, we, we probably need to have a whole separate conversation about that one. Um, <laughs> but I want to get to Off the Dome. And these are just some quick, pithy kind of remarks, literally the first thing off the head. So mm. people typically ask someone, what's the best advice you've, you've ever gotten or received? I want to flip that. What's the worst advice you've ever gotten? Uh, the worst advice I ever got was, uh, with coming out of business school, focus on going to investment banking because you could make a lot of money. Uh, if I had done that, I probably could have made a lot of money, but I would have never enjoyed the life that I have. So I can sympathize with that as someone who didn't do investment banking, but did trading, but the same mentality. So yeah, right. I can likely confirm that you made the right choice. Second question. Work from home is for many people is kind of becoming the new normal, quote unquote. <laughs> so many of us, and it sounds like you have been one of those people who have worked from many distributed places globally. But nonetheless, if you could only work from one place going forward, where would that place be? It actually would be right here. I'm, I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. It's a beautiful little town. It's right in the edge of the mountains. My family is close by. I'm very happy. Awesome. So it'd be right here. Now, we, we threw around a lot of terms, a lot of things that people talk about in not just strategy circles, but business circles. If there's one word that you could banish from strategy conversations forever, what word would that be? Well, it's not really a word. Well, the thing that popped into my head was SWAT. But the second thing that popped in my head was vision. SWAT's actually not that dysfunctional. Vision is, you know, the, the idea that one, one vision dominates is dysfunctional. So I, I would ban that. We talk about outcomes, clear outcomes with measurable characteristics, something you can see, feel, and do, and you share that complex reality. So being visionary is very important. Individuals being visionary is very important. But the idea that there's one simple vision to move us forward is nonsense. Okay, we're gonna cut vision out of there. That's awesome. I, I love those. I love those responses. I want to get us to the drop. And mm -hmm. the drop is just a recommendation of anything for our listeners that they think could be a benefit, could be interesting. I give one as well. So I can go first or you can go first, whichever you prefer. Well, I'll I'll go first. I'll I'll suggest a drop just because it's something I'm gonna do. And that's read a book called Dirt to Soil by a guy named Gabe Brown. Now, Gabe Brown is a, a family farmer in South Dakota and a leader in the regenerative agriculture movement. And he uh, demonstrates that practitioners 
like myself, like yourself, are often far ahead of where the academic research is. And they're often pioneers. And so uh, I came across this book earlier this week, and um, I'm encouraging people to read it because it looks really good. Okay, that's awesome. I'm, that sounds like something I would I would enjoy, and I think our listeners would too. So, right when we're done with this, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna do what I always do, which is look it up and and see if I could if I could find it somewhere. Um, that's a great drop. My drop actually goes back a little bit to it's a a graphic novel that was published in 1990. Uh, and it's called Give Me Liberty, and it introduces a, a character called Martha Washington and. It was created by Frank Miller and Dave Givens. Frank Miller, famous for many things. Most people will usually link him to The Dark Knight and kind of reinvention of that character. But Frank Miller is obviously a a legend in comics. And Dave Givens is most known for his part in The Watchmen, though he's, he's known for many other things, but people will usually think of them for those two things. And Give Me Liberty is a a story uh, about Martha Washington, who's a, at the time, a, a young woman in the military, she's African-American, kind of at the time dealing with a bunch of futuristic circumstances, which would probably seem less futuristic to us. But at the time, this is very groundbreaking. And in 1990, to have introduced this character that was very different from mm-hmm. what we came to know in the superhero comic book world. And I think it, it just seems very relevant and prescient in this particular moment as we are telling different stories. And it it just came to me as I was thinking about this drop that, wow, you know, this is a story I haven't looked at in probably a long time, but I remember how significant it was to me in 1990 and and subsequently. So I want to introduce the world to this character, Martha Washington, and the first series is called Give Me Liberty by Frank Miller and Dave Givens. And that's my drop. So this was a great conversation. I'm, I'm glad we were able to kind of go through so many things we could have gone on much longer, um, but that will save more things for future conversations. And I'm glad we were able to have this. I want to thank you for being on the deep dive. Well, Philip, you you joked as we were preparing for this that uh, I could go out with, uh, hey, this is the best interview I've ever had on a podcast. And, and in fact, uh, that's not a joke. That's true. This is great. And you're a wonderful host. And I really appreciate uh, the time to spend with you. Oh, thank you. See, I'm going to I'm going to go out leaving leaving them with more or wanting more. So this has been <laughs> awesome. It's been a pleasure having Ed Morrison join me on the Deep Dive. You can listen to the Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.